Hello, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine and you're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show. We have today a special edition. I'm delighted to have with me in the studio Professor Ray Tallis, who has a wonderful new book out called In Defence of Wonder. And we're going to be talking about that. Also in the studio with me is Darren Green, who may or may not interject as the uh, hour progresses. So first of all, uh, Ray, I I wonder if you could just introduce yourself for people who don't know anything about you or haven't heard you. I mean, what's your background in philosophy or in science? Yes, indeed. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me on the show again. It's a delight to be back. My main background is in medicine. I was professor of geriatric medicine for 20-odd years in the University of Manchester with a particular interest in clinical neuroscience, stroke and epilepsy. And that overlaps with my very long-standing interest in uh, philosophy, particularly the philosophy of mind. Right, because you were basically being a surgeon for brains. Would that be a... No, I wasn't a surgeon for brains. I'd only do that by accident in a car. No, yeah. essentially, I, I was um, involved in, in the neurological side of brain illnesses. I ran epilepsy clinics. I okay. set up a stroke unit and so on and so forth. So, but I didn't do any surgery, at least not that I'm aware of. Okay, and, and if you heard the last episode with Ray, you'd know that his last book was Including Darwinitis and, and Neuromania, uh, Aping Mankind. So um, that was all about the brain. This book is... In Defence of Wonder is a bit more eclectic. I wonder, first of all, uh, is there a theme for the book, would you say? I guess there's an implicit theme and an explicit theme. Uh The explicit theme is flagged up in the first essay, which sets out the reasons why we should be in a state of wonder, why it's it's the proper state of mankind, as it were, and womankind, and then discusses the reasons why we're in fact not in a state of wonder most of the time. And the role that philosophy has to play, along with art and with science, in promoting our proper state of wonder. Okay, so I suppose, could you give us a sort of provisional definition of wonder? A definition of wonder? Now, that's something I don't offer in the book. In a way, I almost thought it's one of those self-evident things. But I suppose it is a state of awestruck astonishment at the sheer complexity and mystery of things. How's about that? No, that's great. So in that case, why do you think you particularly need to defend wonder, especially at this time? Well, the biggest enemy of wonder is somebody called Raymond Tallis, who okay. spends most of his time not in a state of wonder, when he's worrying about patients, as he was for many years, when he's running for buses, uh, when he's uh, tired, idle, busy, etc., etc. In all those states, one isn't in a state of wonder. One takes everything in the world for granted. And, if you like, there's a patina of staleness over things. Okay. So I have to defend wonder against my own natural state, which is not to be in a state of wonder. I also have to defend it against those who perhaps feel wonder is a rather childish state and inappropriate Mm -hmm. for a grown-up human being, that the wondering child is a creature with a drool of saliva coming down its mouth while it's gawping at something. Also against those who feel that wonder is covered, as it were, by religion. Sure. Or, indeed, covered by science. Um... Science does explore wonder, but I don't think uh, wonder and the spiritual state it represents um, is entirely to be confined uh, to science or indeed, uh, being an atheist, you might expect me to say this, uh, whether religion has a monopoly on wonder either. Uh But, I mean, do you think that it's got a value just for itself or has a value because it leads you to further understanding or both, possibly? I wouldn't want to subordinate it to some practical use, to say that if you wonder, then you'll be a nicer person or you'll work harder for the good of humanity. I don't think it works like that. I still feel, however, that if you are in a state of wonder, you do value things somewhat more 
and that make you more, may make you more caring about things. I'm not too sure uh-huh. whether that's true of myself. Um, but I think wonder is really an end in itself. It is something uh-huh. to be valued. It's like looking around you before you die. You, know, okay. you say, what's the point of looking around you? You're going to die. Well, yeah. yeah. But it's before a, you die. It's a, it, worthwhile in itself because it is a positive experience. Absolutely. And a positive experience that can be shared and communicated to others, which gives them positive experiences as they will give positive experiences to oneself. So sharing something one thinks is wonderful is a very good way of t- mode of togetherness with other people. OK, um, just a couple more um, general questions about wonder. Uh, I wonder if you could tell me what the difference is between philosophy and wonder. Well, I, I define philosophy as articulate wonder. Right. Um, clearly, one can have a, be in a state of wondering without any way, any way articulating it to oneself or without connecting that moment with other moments when one's wondered. Philosophy, and I think the best definition of philosophy is, comes from Wilfred Sellers, who says it's an attempt to see how things in the broadest sense hang together in the broadest sense. And that can come out of wonder and maybe one of the aims of wondering, which is quite different, as it were, from the wonder one may sometimes feel when you look at a beautiful view. OK, so, but, I mean, would you say they're different sort of aspects of mind states of wonder are appropriate for different circumstances? I guess so. I've never quite sort of classified. The only thing I'm, as it were, quite a um, taxonomist of, okay. of wonder in that sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or indeed a taxidermist of wonder. Wonder and critical thinking, doesn't critical thinking to a certain extent negate wonder, even though critical thinking is the, uh, is the, be- you know, is the beginning and end of philosophy, I suppose? There are occasions where critical thinking, where you're indeed focusing on criticising other people's viewpoints, may be quite a long way from the primary state of philosophising, which is wonder. At the same time, critical thinking can also deepen your sense of wonder and can also enable you to connect the things you wonder about with other things that you wonder about. Because one aim of wondering is indeed to wonder how things hang together. So when you... Let me see if I got this right. When you critically think about things in some profound way, this can introduce you to new ideas that you never thought of before, perhaps, and that would make you think, hey, that's amazing, and you're having a wonderful state of mind then. That sort of thing. I think that's absolutely true. And the conversation one has with other philosophers, whether contemporaries or whether they're our predecessors, I think is one of the great drivers to wonder. Philosophers who ask questions you would never think of, who've wondered about things you've never thought about, who've identified paradoxes that have never occurred to you, who've seen that the obvious isn't obvious. OK. I'm also, I'm also wondering why... Would it have been just as apt for you to have called your book In Defence of Philosophy? And if not, what's the difference? I guess so, yes. I, 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 the book is about philosophical thinking in the very broadest sense. Uh-huh as one of the instruments and servants of wonder. Okay. So wonder is defended, but the, the method by which I defend or practice wondering is, is philosophical. OK, fantastic. Um, what... I guess, OK, let's get into the philosophy of the book. Maybe start more generally. There's... It seems to me one of the trends in the book is to uh, promote uh, philosophy in the face of science. Uh-huh. Why do we need, why does science or why do we need philosophy? And you may say, why do I need to defend philosophy in in relation to science? And why would I, nearly all of whose research has been scientific, 
why would I want to, as well, limit the scope of the claims of science? But I think many people feel that philosophy has been superseded by science. Sure. And indeed, there are certain scientists, particularly physicists like Stephen Hawking and Stephen Weinberg, who have actually said that. You know, uh -huh. For people like Stephen Hawking, uh, philosophers who do metaphysics are just simply people who are ignorant of physics. And if they, did, okay. they knew their physics, they wouldn't bother with the kind Sorry. of thoughts they have. Metaphysics for the listener is, is a philosophical consideration of what the fundamental nature of reality is, what the fundamental nature of being human is, that sort of thing. So, absolutely. Well, thank you. And, and it seems to me that, that in that area and also in the area of neuroscience, where many neuroscientists think we no longer need to look beyond our examination of the brain to understand the nature of consciousness, to understand the nature of ethics, even law and economics, all of these people need to be reminded actually that they work within a conceptual framework. And part of philosophical wondering is to look critically at that conceptual framework. OK, what do you mean by conceptual framework? It's the very way in which we frame our investigations, okay. the presuppositions that lie behind are looking in a certain way rather than another. Uh, Darren, this is Darren Green. Yes. Um, I mean, I've got a point here. I mean, do you think that the scientists who are somewhat dismissive of philosophy are also tend to be somewhat dismissive of social sciences, the humanities, uh, as well, and that that's part of the equation. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, in a sense, I couldn't give you an exact epidemiology of the distribution of contempt, as you were, among scientists for <laughs> philosophy on the one yeah. hand and social science on the other, but those uh, hostile attitudes uh, towards the humanities uh, seem to be pretty uh, broadly uh, across the spectrum. And, and it's important that scientists are reminded of their conceptual frameworks because at present they're leading them up, it seems to me, up the creek without a paddle. If, and yeah. I'm sure we may discuss this uh, further Could you give track. me an example, please? Well, I think there's at least three areas sure. where scientists have so framed their questions that they're either... that they are producing false, premature or misleading answers. Uh -huh. In the area of human consciousness, the area of time, and uh, the area of if you like, fundamental ontology or metaphysics of what kinds of things they are and how they came into being. OK, let's pick one of those. Let's say the, the last one, the fundamental th things that are. Wh where are scientists going wrong which philosophers could help them? Well, I think physics, first of all, thank you, physics, for keeping me sure. warm and dry and making my life more fun and more rich and more safe. You know, this is not a criticism of physics. It's a criticism of, of physics as claimed to be metaphysical, to address those fundamental questions sure. about the nature of the universe which philosophers have traditionally approached. Physics essentially is about the nature of matter. Okay. And if you accept that the nature of matter and matter as it's described by physicists is the last word on thing, then clearly there's no space for philosophy. Yeah. My own feeling is... There's no need for it. There's no need for it. But we are all aware of the problems physics is getting into, internal problems and external problems. The like intern with the superstring 27-dimensional Yes, I mean, uh, speculation. all the attempts to reconcile quantum mechanics and general theory of relativity uh -huh. have led to ever more um, Byzantine uh, um, theories, or indeed landscapes of theories. You know, string theory, for example, is a landscape of 10 to the power of 500 sure. theories. And they're being led more and more by the need to make things mathematically coherent and are moving more and more away from anything that is close to human experience. I mean, that's the internal problem. The external problem is when they try and invade the territory that was traditionally occupied by theology, for which, by the way, I have as little time. Yeah. 
and think that they can, for example, offer an alternative explanation of the origin of the universe, which will replace the religious one. Now, the religious one, thank you very much indeed, goodbye and farewell. But the notion that the universe came into being as a result of the simultaneous generation of things that cancelled one out, each other out, so we got a big free lunch, that seems to me, actually, not to stand up to two minutes' careful thought. It it, it would suggest we needed two acts of creation, one to produce the positive... And want to produce the negative. It's bad metaphysics that they've got themselves into. It's in bad other metaphysics. Worlds. So, so we, we need uh, yeah, philosophy. Yes, and, and philosophy needs to end with its science cringe and say, look, we do have a place, uh, 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 a part to play in clarifying these questions. You know, what would it mean to to say that the universe came into being? What would it mean? to say of time beginning at a particular time or not? What would it mean to say that space began from an uh, infinitely dense, di- undimensionless point? What would it mean? Mm, and and yeah. these questions aren't being what, asked. Well, what are the implications of the idea? What, what intuitions can sensibly correspond to it? I mean, at the moment, everything is driven by the maths, yeah. which, of course, has helped us enormously. The maths is an extraordinary way of bringing together observations and predictions. You know, that's why... So much, so much of our technology works because the maths is so good. But there is another question to be asked. There is another job to be done. And that's where philosophy needs to reassert itself. And that's at the level of metaphysics. There are other areas, of course, as well. OK, that's great. Which brings us back to your book. I wonder if you could sort of just tell the listeners what what sort of elements in Defence Wonder has. I mean, I know it's it's got essays concerning art consciousness, the limits of science. Is there anything else you would like to add to that Yes, there are pieces about space and Uh time, about knowingness as opposed to knowledge, uh, about the sheer complexity of everyday life, about the way that our lives are both coherent and incoherent, Uh, some of the challenges of realistic fiction which attempts to express what is there in a broader sense in a non-philosophical way, using novels and so on and so forth. Uh I defend atheism as opposed to agnosticism. I think what uses we can make of the fact that we are outlived by we outlive others. Um, so there are quite a lot of quite distinct themes, and that is not accidental. Most of the essays were occasional essays in the sense that they were triggered by a particular occasion. Okay, can you think of an example? Um, well, uh, mostly the occasion is I've had the privilege of you know, writing a regular column for philosophy now and walking yeah. along. Something occurs to me. I think this is worth exploring. Uh-huh. So it, it's more the sense that there is something worth exploring. I think uh, if you are a thinker, you're a bit like a truffle hound. You can sense there's something okay. under the ground. You have a little sniff around and so on, and you turn one or two things up. You know. I, I think it's definitely perceivable reading them. That background as a as a doctor does come through because there is a, a strong element of interest in what it means to be a human being from all sorts of angles, not only scientific but also artistic and, you know, existential maybe a little bit. Maybe you don't like that word, but how... I mean, how far would you say that your your past has influenced your present philosophy? Very much so. I mean, as a doctor, you're very aware of the incredible complexity of ordinary life. Right. And um, of the temptations also productionism. You know, there is a temptation to reduce a person who has an illness to an illness as a set of processes. Okay. But, of course, people with illnesses are totally different from their illnesses. Right. I ran epilepsy clinics for many years, and the people with epilepsy weren't just a series of epileptic fits. They were people who were coping with everything that epilepsy meant, often extremely successfully. And that distance between the person and the organic body and between the person and the organic body and the material world is something that was 
very much underlined by my medical experiences. Okay, great. Darren? uh, Would you agree with me that some doctors would actually rather uh, people were just lumps of human biology rather than people? I think there are some doctors like that, but Mm -hmm. not many, and and, and, and not as many as in the proper imagination. I mean, most of my colleagues where I worked uh, were actually people persons, And, and the reason they got into medicine rather than into biochemistry or physics was because they were people person, that they actually liked talking to people and finding out what they felt about their illnesses rather than just simply taking a biopsy of this bit and that bit and seeing what's under the microscope. Of course, that is part of the thrill of medicine as well, that it is applied science. Nevertheless, there is still, it seems to me, a strong tendency to to reduce things to their simplest explanation. And maybe you have to do that sometimes in order to explain something, but then perhaps you would say that you have to bring things back together again. What, what is gained by looking at things in a more complex manner? Just doing justice to them. I mean, if again, if we take the example of someone who has epilepsy, I mean, right. one of the great advances in epilepsy is understanding exactly what it is in simple neural terms. Uh-huh. It's bursts of electricity, synchronised electricity in the brain that cause these events. That's the reductionist. That's the reductionist, and that's the necessary reductionist. So right. when you're thinking about controlling the epilepsy, you think about drugs that will reduce the excitability of the nervous system. Right. Great. But then you think about the person with epilepsy and how you communicate the problem they have, how they cope with it, what is the best way of making it a small part of their life rather than a big part of their life. Mm -hmm. And when we think about drugs, it's not just a question of taking the tablets. You have to trade off between the benefits and the medication in stopping the seizures and the disbenefits, perhaps of feeling a bit drowsy or not liking taking tablets every day. So you can see that we have to reduce to make one kind of progress, but we have to unreduce in order to ensure that progress works for human welfare rather than simply, as it were, working to solve a particular narrowly construed problem. Yeah, Uh, so it's it's good to see things from all angles to get the best, most information? I think you're you're really putting your finger on what's behind the book, which is a desire to do respect to the complexity of things. Oh, good. And, um, you know, I've absolutely no doubt that we've benefited enormously from, from reductionism. Yeah. But now we need to have a little bit of um, corrective. OK, and uh, part of that corrective is in defence of Wanda. We're going to play a track now, and then I'll get Ray to read a section from his book. OK, here we go.
Hello, uh, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine. You're listening to a special edition of the Philosophy Now radio show on resonance. And uh, I'm talking to Professor Ray Tallis, who has a new book called In Defence of Wonder. With me in the studio is also Darren Green. We've just talked a bit about the general themes of the book and the general motivation behind it. And I, I was just going to ask Professor Tallis if he'd, he'd read a bit from it so you get a flavour of it. Oh, thank you. Well, perhaps I could kick off with the opening paragraphs. Sure. It seems to make logical sense. Philosophy should begin and end in wonder. The problem is that we latecomers are not beginning at the beginning, and we don't know when to end, when to stop arguing, and start imagining the position towards which we have argued ourselves. Philosophy has to find its place somewhere between the inarticulate amazement of the child and those great verbal contraptions, built out of sentences, well-carpented and ill-formed, devoted to unpacking, connecting and disconnecting mighty abstractions between guru-goo, full of portentous assertions about the universe and our place in it, and a million professional articles echoing each other's minutiae down a labyrinth of footnotes. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, I ought to set out some of the reasons why, as I tell myself every day, I should be in an almost permanent state of wonder. The most obvious is that my existence, the fact that I am, the fact there is an entity called Raymond Tallis, who has to fill the office of being Raymond Tallis, is entirely unexplained. At the most fundamental level, not only do I not know why there is Raymond Tallis, I don't know why, as the philosophers put it, there is something rather than nothing, why there is anything at all. Don't be deceived by the claims of scientists to have arrived at a theory of everything, or at least to be en route to the same, that they are now able to say why the universe came into being. Their explanations, disturbances in a quantum vacuum and all that sort of stuff, are as flawed and unhelpful as the theological stories they aspire to replace. Anyone who feels that suns and stars and galaxies could have been spawned out of the mathematically demonstrated instabilities in nothing hasn't understood the question. OK, thanks. Um, I do get the impression from that, I mean, obviously it's only a small part of the book, but um, I get the impression that you, your, your basic line in philosophy is that the point of philosophy is to explain why anything exists, and in particular, why you exist. I don't think it's quite as ambitious as that, right. because otherwise it would fail on its mission. I don't have an explanation. The book doesn't offer an explanation. Okay. Anybody bought the book looking for the explanation would have me up under the Trade Descriptions Act. So right. I think what it is, is it's an attempt at the profoundest level to make the phenomenon of existence real and present, to make sure that any questions we ask about things, fundamental things, are framed in the right sort of way. Yeah. I think that, that, that those are the main so, purposes of Would philosophy. you say that means understanding what the questions actually are? Or, or I think that's true. Uh -huh. Gertrude Stein on her deathbed said, what is the answer? There was dead silence, so she said, OK, what's the question? Uh -huh. And to some extent, philosophy is in part trying to set out what the questions are, to make one question the obvious, to untake the taken for granted. OK, so what... Can you give me some examples of what sort of questions you're asking in this book and answering, let's say? Well, they're a very disparate set well, of questions. Yes, but let me give one example uh -huh. about the nature of memory, for right. example. As someone from a neurophysiological background, I was taught by my tutor that memory consists basically of the changed reactivity of the brain. That we have an experience, right. it changes how the brain reacts to future experiences. If you like, it retunes uh, the various circuits in the brain. 
That seems such an obvious explanation that it's, it's almost insurpassable. Enter philosophy, question the obvious. You say, hang on a moment, the brain is a piece of matter. Right. Piece of matter doesn't have a past tense. It is what it is. Right. So the changed state of something cannot preserve its previous states. Right. The effects of a cause don't actually preserve the cause as well. And remember, when I'm remembering something, I'm not really, as it were, acting out the consequences of an experience I've had. I actually recall that experience. So, so I remember the smile at Waterloo Station, which is the title of the essay. So, I mean, I think I recall your quote is, it's the mysterious presence of the past in memory, which isn't, you know, it's not a property of matter in any other circumstance. So this raises the question of whether the materialists are true in saying that the, the mind is the same as the brain, because obviously if you at the moment remember something that is past, then it's, the past is there, whereas in matter, all there is is the present at all the times. Is that right? You're quite right, and uh, don't take my word for it. Take that the authority of one Albert Einstein, okay. who basically said that tensed time doesn't exist. He says that past, present, and future, for we believing physicists, are just illusions, even though they're stubborn ones. Uh -huh. And so it seems to me that um, I'm with the physicists in denying the reality of tensed time within the material world. So if we start looking at something like memory, which at first seems to have an obvious kind of explanation... Right. You dig a little bit deeper and you realise that obvious explanation doesn't actually deliver anything like an explanation. OK, that seems to be uh, your modus operandi throughout this book is to maybe start off with something which seems obvious and then sort of just sort of pick at it until it sort of unravels and then scour the pieces. I mean, would you say that's... A I think that's true, or something that something very ordinary thing. I remember sitting across a little girl on the train and right. she said to her mummy... You know, this is just a little tune I found in my mouth because she was humming. And I thought, gosh, how often we find tunes in our head. We find ourselves doing things that we haven't actually selected. I mean, I'm particularly prone to suddenly start singing tunes that I haven't heard for decades. Uh -huh. And I think, gosh, that's rather worrying. It would appear that I'm, as it were, in the grip of uh, influences that I haven't selected. And many, much, much of the time, I, I have trains of thought that carry on of their own accord and so on and so forth. And that, for me, was the entree into looking at the tension between, on the one hand, ourselves as beings who are the sites of events that happen, mm -hmm. we don't specifically choose, and ourselves who forge our own lives through voluntary actions. And, of course, I do believe in free will and voluntary actions. And the extraordinary mystery of the free will is we forge our voluntary actions out of, or in the context of, great nexus of mechanisms which are necessary to support them. Sure. Um, so maybe you would... Uh, part of the, one, one idea that you're promoting is that uh, there's philosophy in everyday life. You just know how to look for it or find it. You've just got to scrutinise the back of your hand with a certain amount of curiosity. I mean, the thrilling thing about philosophy is that all you need to think about lies to hand. You know, you don't have to yeah. sort of get equipment to discover something called time or space uh -huh. or memory or knowledge. You've just got to be prepared to think without prejudice, to think against your own thoughts, because out of the argument with others we make rhetoric. Yeah. It's out of the argument with ourselves we make philosophy. So it's self-critical thinking. Self-critical thinking, but because you bring on board the best that's gone before. Uh -huh. I mean, uh, Irie in Zadie Smith's White Teeth at uh -huh. the age of 15 thought she'd had thoughts that had never been thunk before. Right. And what a great pity that is, because a lot of the things she was thinking had been thunk before and thunk better. So I think it's very important yeah. that when you have this argument with yourself, 
you bring in all sorts of other characters whom you will have studied with great care, the great philosophers. Or you'll be uh, like reinvented the ontological argument, for instance. Exactly. Um, You'll have lost the opportunity to take part in a conversation that's been going on for two and a half thousand years. Okay. How would you describe your way of doing philosophy? It, it is an inquiry that is willing, as it were, to go wherever the inquiry takes me. Right. To some extent, one does fall within the agenda of philosophy. So I would write a book about time, mm-hmm. or a book about, which is my current book, uh, or um, about consciousness, or about the relationship between language and the world, which I dealt with in a book called Not So Sure. But within those broad sort of um, uh, curriculum uh, divisions... I think we, we just follow our, our nose. But the important thing is that you're aware of what other people have done as well. Because yeah. I think it's an insult to any reader to tell them things you've thought out by yourself without checking out that they haven't been thought by others and thought better by others. And would you say that you have a particular way of writing philosophy as well? I have a way of writing books. Right. Uh, and it's not the same thing as sort of writing down philosophy. The great pleasure in life is I have a notebook. Right. And just writing the things straight down, the pen is, is heaven and following the thoughts and being surprised by the thoughts and so on. The next stage, then, bringing it together into a book is actually less unalloyed pleasure. Yeah. The great French poet and thinker Paul Valéry once said that there is a conflict between the processes of thought and the products of thought. Uh-huh. You know, you, you, I really enjoy sitting down in my favourite pubs, writing about whatever topic is occurring to me at the time, but I have to then stop thinking to see how I can bring those thoughts not only into a coherent argument, but into chapters, into a book of certain mm. length, a book of certain length that we published. It becomes administration then. It becomes absolutely, it becomes a clerical activity almost sometimes. Mm-hmm. Not, not for a lot of the time, but for sufficient time to make one regret that one's dismounted from thought in order to write it down. OK, um, I suppose we, we could get now a little bit into some of the specific topics of in defence of wonder. One question is, you seem to concentrate on time as one of your topics. Why is time interesting to you? We are time-torn creatures. Right. Time is the, if you like, the condition under which we live, you know, time and space. And so it is of great concern to us. And trying to make sense of all of those paradoxes of time, which we are all aware of, um, even you know, ch- children are aware of, you know, where is yesterday, mummy? What is the future? Uh, why does you know half an hour seem a long time and you know, two days mm-hmm. seems a short time or ten years seems a short time? I'm particularly interested in rescuing time from the jaws of physics. You may think I'm harping on about this. Uh-huh. Um, but in particular, to put living time at the centre of our understanding of time, lived time. There's nothing novel about that. You mentioned the existentialists mm-hmm. earlier on and the phenomenologists. They did the same. I so it's our experience of time rather than maybe how a physicist would measure time, perhaps. Well, the physicists have crashed diet at time to the point where it can be expressed by a line right. or it can be expressed as a dimension called little t, a dimension that joins, in classical physics, three other dimensions of space mm-hmm. so that any moment or, or any point in space-time can be described by three dimensions or the values of three dimensions in space and one dimension in time. And I think that that view has been extremely helpful, but it really uh, removes from time all of those things about time that matter to us. This is the time of particles moving through space. It's not the time of you and I going from birth to death. 
Okay, so again, it's a question of the physics reduction has its uses, but we've got to know the limits of what that implies and that there's a lot beyond what the scientists reduce things to. And I think there's a really interesting question, Uh which is why does reductionism work so well? And how does the um, scientific picture of the world relate to our manifest image of the world? Wilfred Sellers again. Okay. And it's the theme of my next book, After the Present One. Oh, I was going to ask you to answer those questions. Well, no, it's the theme of a book called Logos, which is essentially the whole mystery about the world making sense. Okay. Scientific sense, everyday sense, and so on. And I think one of the great challenges of the 21st century is to look into this, what Einstein described as the deepest mystery of all, the intelligible, the partial intelligibility of the world. Yeah. And I think we need to look at how our different approaches to in making the world intelligible, whether it's art, whether it's everyday common sense, whether it's science, how they really do relate. And is there some perhaps super uh, intelligibility that would bring those together? Some, some master theory that sort of subsumes all other theories, perhaps. Yes, and it wouldn't be a theory of everything, but it would be a theory at least uh, gives respect to everything. Uh-huh. See, the theory of everything at the moment is the theory of everything but the theorist. You okay. Know, quantum gravity may ultimately, you know, if it um, dis- climbs outside of the mathematical um, interior into which it's climbed at the moment, it may deliver a pretty complete account of the world as seen objectively. Right. From without effective- having the observer in you. Mean. Exactly. From no- the view of, of of the world from no viewpoint. Yeah. Thomas Nagel's point, mm-hmm. great American philosopher. But I think we've got to say, well, yes, thank you very much indeed. That's terrific. And if I want to get a rocket to the moon, you know, Einstein's my man, and so on. If I'm going to get a computer to work, you know, Planck's my man. But when it wants to, I'm thinking about what it means to have been a human being or to be a human being, when I have no religious uh, explanation uh, or, or no, no, no theology, as it were, to provide those answers, then I think we've got to start looking at both objective knowledge and subjective experience and seeing how they do relate. Uh, that's your next book, I suppose. That's what Logos is about. Okay. Yes. Uh, coming back next, to... Next but one, I hasten to add. All right. Uh, the time book uh, of Time and Lamentation is still in the process this of being written. The, <laughs> the, the Ray Tellis production line uh, exactly, proceeds exactly. apace. Um, so going back to this book, you, you have also several articles on uh, literary criticism, let's call it generally uh, formulated. What are the limits of what fiction can do in, in terms of, uh, say, conveying human experience or what it's like to be a human being, do you think? I think that all modes of prose may help us to try and understand what it is to be ourselves. Right. And for a long time I thought fiction was the right approach, in particular philosophical fiction. Why did you think that? Because it combined two things. Mm-hmm. One was gossip, which we all love. You know, yeah. I mean, if, you, if you're not turning the pages wanting to find out what happens next, then you're not sufficiently engaged. And the other was um, metaphysics or whatever. And I'd spent an awful long time writing many books, although I've published many books. There are many unpublished in my loft, bending the RSJ, of attempts to write genuinely philosophical fiction. Right. And although Um, I never did that... Sorry, can I stop you? What do you mean by genuinely philosophical fiction? This this is fiction that would uh, um, address the philosophical questions but locate your inquiry in particular situations or Uh people. And there have been some successful... Like Iris Murdoch is like that, is it? Um, Oh, that she was. I mean, I think Milan Kundera gets quite close, and I think Sartre in one book, Nausea, uh, gets close. But really, philosophical fiction, I think, ultimately is unachievable. And the failure to achieve a really good philosophical fiction 
uh, has has led to my writing essays on the limits okay. of literary fiction. Why why do you think you can't have a philosophical fiction? I mean, I, I'm curious as a writer myself. You know, fiction's glory is in being rooted in a very particular situation mm-hmm. and realizing a particular situation. Philosophy's glory is to assume a position of absolute generality, talking about things like time and space. And it's getting those together that's difficult. And I just think ultimately they're incommensurate. And what happens when a lot of people write philosophical fiction is you have the fiction and the philosophy floats like the lumps of undissolved, you know, gravy. Yeah. You have to write it in. I mean, would you would you say that, uh, say, Plato's Socratic Dialogues, are they philosophical fiction? Yeah. I, I think that they're not very good as fiction, are they? Mm. They're quite well, good. he gets better as he gets older, I think. He gets better as he gets older, but in the end, I mean, they're dramatisations in a way, and they've got little bit saucy bits, people coming in drunk and so on, but yeah. I, I think they're pretty thin. OK. My God, I got to be shot by Clusters for saying that. And, <laughs> but the fact remains, is when it, when, as, 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 as works of fiction or drama, they are very thin. Perhaps they're, perhaps they're non-fiction masquerading as fiction. Would that be a fair... I'm sure that's true. I mean, in many ways, Socrates is a mouthpiece rather than a character. Yeah. yeah. OK, a um, couple of other things. You say that you're an atheist, but your reasons for atheism aren't the typical reasons for atheism. What would you say is your reason for atheism? I mean, there are lots of common wrong reasons for atheism. Right. One is to argue that there's no evidence for the existence of God. Well, I'm not too sure what evidence would count. For some people, the very fact there's something rather than nothing is sufficient evidence. Mm -hmm. Uh, The very fact we can communicate and we're in an intelligible world is evidence. It doesn't count for me, but for some people, that. The other mistake is to think that um, we demonstrate the non-existence of God when we look at how wicked religions are. Well, I'm not too sure if you ran the tape twice, with and without religion, whether the world would be a more wicked or a less wicked place. And anyway, the wickedness is irrelevant. Just because a priest molests a child doesn't mean to say the Big Bang is true as opposed to the Genesis story. Okay. You can't draw metaphysical conclusions from human institutions. It's what's called an ad hominem argument in philosophical circles. Absolutely. He says you're a wicked person, so what do you say must be untrue. Absolutely. Okay. So what is the reason for being an atheist? And there are many reasons, many good reasons, but the one that carries weight with me is if you look at the concept of God. Right. And you try and extract from all the religions what is common to the concept of God, you run into something that is essentially self-contradictory. Mm-hmm. Here's some of his, her, or its self-contradictory features. The fact that he is a creator, separate from his creation, but also is infinite and is equal to the sum total of things. Well, mm-hmm. if he's separate from his creation, then there's something in addition to him. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sure some theologian could some, come up with some fine theological argument to dispute. They have. With, you I've know. looked at them all, and they don't work. Right. And, and, and secondly, there's the more sort of narrow one, which is the notion that God is omnipotent and all good, beneficent, but nevertheless the world is evil. And so or many people live a pretty awful life. How does that happen? Well, the only argument theologians can come up with is that if we have evil, then we have this great good called the exercise of free will. Yeah. And I remember debating this with somebody in the wake of the Haiti disaster. Yeah. And I said, just remind me of precisely how a two-month-old baby crushed beneath bricks is exercising its free will. OK. Um, I mean, maybe a better argument would be that maybe uh, some things couldn't be achieved without going through the process of experiencing evil or something like that. Well, if God is omnipotent, anything could be achieved by any means. Maybe. I'm not sure I agree with that one, but we'll move on to the next thing, which will be 
your general scepticism about certain approaches to philosophy, such as uh, when you say you've got an article about George Moore who who said basically, but my proof of the external world is I'm holding up my hands. What's wrong with that sort of proof? I, I think it, it is deliberately point-missing. There are some real questions about what it is we have immediate access to when we are the nature of the objects of perception. Right. And George Moore was deliberately being an anti-philosopher, and he himself said he would never, ever have come up with any philosophical problems if he hadn't read the crazy things that philosophers have said. And, so oh, on. Right. and when he says, you know, I can see my right hand and I can see my left hand, therefore I know there are two objects in the external world, you have to say, well, hang on a moment, everybody knows that. Yeah. You know, the, the, the big question that's being asked is precisely what it is you're experiencing and how that relates to what is out there independent of your experience. And the truth is, he himself was haunted by this, and he admitted on other occasions, the whole of his life he was haunted by the notion of sense data, those immediate givens in our sense experience. Yeah. That like you see a hand, the sense data would be the picture of a hand you have in your mind, for instance. Well, he didn't subscribe to the representational theory of uh -huh. mind, but he did say there were things that are given immediately that are not the objects themselves. So he himself actually, when he was not being silly and deliberately point-missing, actually was trying to make sense of what it is that we as perceivers actually, um, how our perceptions relate to what is truly out there. And I think there's some real good questions. About OK, that. so maybe it's not just that in defence of Wondry is uh, against how scientists do bad philosophy, it's also about how philosophers do bad philosophy as well. I think that's true. And George Moore was onto something, uh -huh. which was there's something insincere sometimes about philosophizing. You know, nobody can genuinely believe they're not sure that there's any other mind in the world. Right. You know, philosophers going to a congress to discuss whether there are other minds suggests that they're not being entirely sincere. Yeah. Because turning up to a congress assumes that there are other minds. And likewise, uh, you know, trying to demonstrate the existence of material objects out there clearly is, is not something we needs to be done. And as a doctor, I did have a long period when I was quite sceptical about philosophical inquiry, yeah. about whether our sentences had reference to the real world. Well, when I was woken up in the middle of the night, cardiac arrest, ward 7, I didn't wonder whether those words referred to any singular reality yeah. in the world. I just got a bed and, you know, ran down the corridor. Yeah, it seems, it seems to me that a lot of bad philosophy is, uh, because there might be a possible reason for scepticism, this means that this sceptical conclusion is true, whereas, of course, you can't jump to that conclusion. Just because something is possible doesn't mean it's true. You're absolutely right. And, and P.F. Strawson, I think, beautifully distinguished what he calls descriptive metaphysics from revisionary metaphysics. Uh -huh. Descriptive metaphysics looks, if you like, at the conceptual frameworks of our beliefs and see how they hang together, our most right. fundamental beliefs. Revisionary metaphysics says, hmm, these don't seem to hang together. So I conclude there's no external material objects or everything's in the mind right. or time is unreal or space unreal and so on. And that's where I wouldn't follow many philosophers, although I like their arguments because yeah. they ask me to look more, again, at um, the, the world around me, which I take generally for granted. So the moral of this story, I suppose, is be interested in the arguments and the questions but not necessarily the conclusions of philosophers. And, and even from philosophers you just do dislike, to take the most out of them, you uh -huh. can. And, and the principle of charity is a good one here. To right. say, this chap or this woman's not an idiot. So let's see what they really were thinking, even if they ended up with idiotic views. That's fair enough. Maybe some last questions. 
How has your thought developed through the writing of these pieces? Because I think it was over maybe three years or something like that that they've written all together. As I say, part of it is regular columns from Philosophy Now and columns in other magazines. So how do you think your thought has developed? I think unconsciously they've documented a drift in my preoccupations. Right. My earliest preoccupation within philosophy was about language right. and um, uh, the relationship between language and the world, the relationship between fictional language and fictional reality, uh, what we can achieve through literature. Then very much centrally an interest in the philosophy of mind and now more recently in, in the philosophy of space and time, particularly time. So I, I guess it's, it's, it's an inadvertent diary, of, a drift in interest. Why do you think this drift has gone in this direction? I think because each stage has seemed to be to look at the look a little bit deeper into what was preoccupied right. firstly. So when you're thinking about the nature of language, ultimately you're thinking about the nature of consciousness. Okay. And when you think about consciousness, as I've discovered when we were talking about memory earlier on, one of the key notions is that of intentionality or aboutness. Mm -hmm. An intentionality that is necessary for our sense of past and okay, present. Okay, sorry, what do, you, what do you mean by intentionality? Uh, aboutness. So, um, so your consciousness is about things. Exactly. So um, what happens in a pebble is not about anything else. Right. What happens in me is about something that I'm aware of. As like a, this radio show. Please. Indeed. I mean, I am an embodied subject whose awareness is about another embodied subject you know, called Grant, who I'm talking to at the moment. Okay. And it, I got really, really stuck on the whole relationship between brain and mind. Right. And it did occur to me when I was thinking about memory that this may be a new way of looking at intentionality, causal theory of perception and other things that have preoccupied me. So in a way, each merging theme seems tasty because it looks like another approach to a preoccupation that seems irresolvable. Oh, so you're just going deeper and deeper into different areas. I like to flatter myself it's deeper. I could be just going sideways yes. or, or, or more shallow. Random walk. Random walk, exactly. That's probably like it, yes. Okay, so um, what are you trying to prove or demonstrate in the book, if anything? In, in this, in, 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 in defence of, well, in defence of one, first of all, and then maybe generally as your yes. mission or your life's philosophy on mission. I think in, in defence of one, in many ways, does um, exemplify one of my aims, I think, in writing philosophically, is something I've alluded to earlier on, is to remind people of the richness and the complexity of things. And that's why I'm opposed to reductionism. Right. And to say that just look about you and think about you and you've got this extraordinarily complex um, set of experiences, of memories, of ideas and concepts, all of which compose just any given moment. Look at those long enough and you'll unpack all sorts of things just from the average Wednesday afternoon. What I want to do is to turn the Wednesday afternoon into what it really is, which is just a moment snatched from an infinity of yeah. absence both ways. And uh, a wonderful moment as well, maybe. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And generally speaking, in your career as a writer of philosophy, how, I mean, what do you think your overall aim is the same, or is there something that is there something that sort of holds all your different interests together over time, or maybe not? There is the idea of some coherent way of thinking about the world, right. an idea that I haven't really realised, nor has anybody else, as far as I can tell. Most of the people who've got, as it were, world pictures that are nicely sealed off, I mean, the mm. most obvious would be someone like Schopenhauer. The okay. world has two aspects, right. will, experience within, and idea, experience without. It's somehow that is wonderful, it's 
fantastic, yeah. and to have a thought that he unpacks through two volumes of World of Will and Idea is absolutely amazing. But in the end, life has a habit, and experience has a habit of trickling out the sides of those little wrappings. And mm-hmm. um, okay, look, I'm going to ask you a difficult question to end with. Really, I mean, you have in defence of Wondery is basically about metaphysics, if I can say so. It's it's to do with okay, what is the nature of human existence, and what is the nature of our reality and our relationship to it. Um, so I, I, can I ask you, what do you think the nature of reality and humanity's place in it is? I don't think I know. I can, all I can do is make explorations here and there. Right. But uh, and as you've sort of concluded provisionally so far, what do you think? Well, I, I, I don't believe, for example, the sum total of things is the material world as described by physics. Right. Whether there's a richer conception of matter that will capture both mental events and physical events mm-hmm. that will capture the difference between a pebble and me, I don't know. And I think that's an interesting job to do. I think there isn't, but that's by the by. Absolutely. And, uh, but uh, at the moment, I think I've argued myself into a, quite a satisfactory position of ontological agnosticism. Uh-huh. I don't know what the fundamental stuff of the world is. But the lovely thing is, I know that nobody else does either. Oh, that's a good place to end. All right. Thank you, Professor Tallius. That was great. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, and we'll have more uh, shows soon.